There was a time in the era of great chaos when the earth and the moon were at war with each other. A daredevil from the moon piloted a bizarre aircraft. It was feared, and because of its shape, called Ironhide. The core cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly Shmup-themed podcast where our gecko won't save you 15% on your car insurance, but it might just blast you to smithereens. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, known throughout other parts of the interwebs as the Game Boy Guru, and as always with me, I have... Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups. Yes, indeed. And as always, rfgeneration.com is the place you want to be. That is where we host the Shmup Club. And we have a great forum there where we've got some fun discussions going on. Uh, you can come play along with the Shmup of the Month with Addicted, myself, and the other participants. Uh, there's another playthrough that is hosted by Single Banana and Grey Ghost 81 where they pick a different game every month and play through it. And then, much like us, they podcast about it as well. Uh, we also have the 2019 RF Generation NES Challenge going on, where we are collectively trying to play through the entire licensed North American NES library. And I want to say that we are at or beyond the halfway point so far. Um, yeah. So, still lots of good games, though, to play through. I myself have claimed uh, The Adventures of Lolo 3 uh, for this month, and so uh, I need to uh, find some time in between the shmup of the month to squeeze some of that in. Uh, also, of course, we have the huge database where you can catalog your game collection and make a wish list, and we've got tons of, of information in there. It's a great resource. So again, rfgeneration.com. All right, for this month, the month of April, we decided to try the seminal PlayStation game from Square called Einhander, or One-Hander, typically referred to as German for one-handed sword. This month, we had participants of Metalfro, Addicted, Zoido, Duke Togo, Coin Goku, Sir Psycho, and the late entrant, 
Jam Master J. Also, I'd like to mention an uh, honorable mention for Sir Flash, who streamed the Japanese version a couple of times and produced the excellent video on the demo for Einhander. I love the cover on that one. If anyone has a chance, take a look at the Japanese version of Einhander to see the cover difference between that and the demo. Pretty good stuff and self-referential there. We also have Nefarious West, who streamed the game a little bit. Thank you to him. If you'd like to start us off with a little bit of information about the game. Sure. So this was developed by Square, of course, and directed by Tatsuo Fuji uh, and producer Yusuke Hirata. Uh, the music was composed by Kenichiro Fukui, and uh, it was released in Japan on November 20th, 1997, and then in the U.S. May 5th, 1998. Uh, I could not find any information on a European release. Do you know anything about that? You know, I think that Europe got the shaft in this case. I don't think that there was a European release. I think the European release was the importing of the American or the Japanese version. Ah, uh, yes. And then it was also re-released on PlayStation Network in Japan, June 25th of 2008. Uh, unfortunately, that never, uh, as far as I know, that never saw a Western digital re-release. And then no other re-releases of the game have happened. Um, and there's speculation that actually the game's code has been lost. Yeah, that was pretty much the case for a lot of those mid-90s, early-90s games. They didn't think that the I mean, it wasn't worth saving, and that's why we have such preservation efforts today. And it, with Panzer Dragoon Saga, everyone's asking, why isn't this re-released? Well, they lost the source code, so they have to go back and either find some way to throw in a wrapper and emulate, or do some major upgrade work. It's a huge endeavor. It's not something you can just do a simple HD up-res. Right. Since archiving wasn't a big deal at the time, I'm, I, I would assume that there are a lot of companies like Square who just haven't haven't got any archive or backup copies of that data. Yeah, Al uh, with Leisure Suit Larry. He, the only reason why that source code exists is because he kept a copy himself. Interesting. The story of the game uh, is as follows. Uh, the Earth and the Moon are at war with one another. Uh, the events of the game take place during what's called the Second Moon War, uh, some length of time after the First Moon War was waged. And then and after... The Era of Great Chaos. <laughs> that's right, as the game's intro likes to say. And of course, after the destruction of much of Earth's defenses... Specifically, it is the Earth colony known as Sodom and the Moon colony known as Selene that are in conflict with one another. Uh, and then, as the game's protagonist, you fly the Einhander craft. And you are, of course, uh, a pilot from the Moon. And the Einhander is a special spacecraft that can steal and equip enemy weapons. Uh, and that's really the game's biggest hook. And so then you're sent on a series of seven, uh, essentially, suicide missions to take out key targets of Earth's remaining defenses. And then the eighth stage basically serves as an epilogue to kind of that initial campaign. And then you take on the true final boss, known as Hyperion, which is actually a robot weapon designed by your own moon forces. Yeah, I would have to say that the story here is certainly a lot more... Uh, expounded upon than you would get a normal shmup where it's pretty much 
so-and-so. The evil bit, oh, Empire is invading. Let's defend planet Gradius or, so, you know, it. it's more fleshed out, but it does come across in some ways a little bit more esoteric. It's very, it reminds me a lot of what you'd see from a Gundam story or the Gundam anime from that time. To me, it draws a lot of inspirations. I was surprised that at one point the moon wasn't trying to drop a space colony on the Earth. But it, it, it does a good job of fleshing out and giving you some reason about why you're doing stuff other than make you know spaceship shoot lasers boom boom yeah and i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned that and the word esoteric was the same word i was going to use because it follows what i'll call a a brief trend in kind of mid to late 90s japanese developed shoot 'em ups where the game stories became somewhat esoteric you know you had this game you had g darius which has kind of an esoteric story that goes in kind of off in the weeds a little bit. You have uh, Ray Crisis specifically that is fairly obtuse. And so, you know, there are a handful of these games during that time that they started to try to introduce more plot elements and things like that as a way to, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's to help appeal to gamers who... Um, you know, to broaden the appeal of the games since the shoot 'em up audience was dwindling and they weren't as popular as they had been 10 years prior in arcades. But it's kind of interesting to see that happen uh, over the course of the mid to late 90s. Well, a lot of it with the mid to late 90s, you had what I like to call the third uh, STG or shooting game renaissance on there. You had your early stuff with Galaga and Scramble and Astro, well, Asteroids and all. Stuff. And then you had your sort of later to early 90s stuff where you're dealing with this 8-16-bit stuff. Um, for example, you're dealing with like your Gradius your, or Nemesis or whatever way you want to put that in there, your 8-16. But then within here, you get also get a change of the medium. You, you know, we have the emergence of the CD-ROM being really useful within there. We have new ways of looking at this, which you'll see a lot of experimentation done. Square themselves was doing a lot of experimentation with Tobol and uh, Urgeis and a whole bunch of other stuff on there. Okay. Oh, let's put RPG elements into our fighting game. Sure, why not? Let's. And this was a wonderful, what I would call a wonderful experiment, something that they didn't go with, but it was so odd for an RPG developer to be throwing this in here. And, and this is where they pull in with their story. But around the same time, you're dealing with, the, as I mentioned earlier, with the CD-ROM advent technology, you have such a bigger palette, you could do more sprites, more music. You know, and for the first time, Redbook Audio comes about, so you could do CD audio, CD quality audio. I mean, think about some of the other stuff that's come out around this time. We have the, uh, our, finally, Arcade Perfect R-Type 1 and 2. We have R-Type Delta. Gradius Gaiden. I mean, lots of experimentation coming out of here. And then we have one which I'm sure you'll be talking about shortly, Philosoma. Yeah. Uh, and we would be remiss, of course, if we didn't mention Radiant Silver Gun, um, because it kind of came out during that area and pushed the boundaries of the hardware and incorporated 3D and 2D elements together, and also could be seen as having somewhat of a an obtuse or esoteric storyline. Yeah, it's definitely was the last area that I can remember where the hard technology was new enough and it was cheap enough where developers could experiment. 
you sort of got a little bit of it in the PS2 area, but it tapered off, and you got a lot of more of the same in the triple A space, which then died off completely when you lost your second tier publishers in the Xbox 360 PS3 era. But now it's just finally starting to come back with the rise of the indies. Yeah, you're starting to see these these types of games come around. And it, it's really nice to see some of the stuff come back with some of the newer ones, such as uh, the one we'll be covering here soon. Uh, spoiler alert, Ghost Blade on there, Crimson Clover. There's just been so much great development in the indie space that's leading to people rediscovering shmups who haven't played them for years. Oh, definitely. Um, which is why I've been excited with this whole shmup club and this whole project to really try and get to where I can see the the genre flourishing again in a way that it hasn't in in uh, quite some time. Yeah, and sort of along the lines of the resurgence of pinball. Yeah. So jumping back into uh, Einhander specifically here, uh, as you mentioned before, Einhander is a German word for one-hander, uh, as in wielding a one-handed sword. Uh, the game has 3D graphics and a 2.5D perspective. Player movement is on a 2D plane, uh, but then sometimes the perspective shifts. Uh, and so all background and all backgrounds and enemies are f- use fully rendered 3D polygons. And uh, with those perspective shifts, um, as you kind of alluded to, that is reminiscent of one of the early PlayStation games, Philosoma. Um, and I'm, I wonder if this game potentially took some inspiration from that. It, I would have to assume it took some inspiration from Gradius 3 as well. That was the first one that I'm aware of with a, bit, a little bit of a perspective shift, where it, it gives you sort of that, um, you know, almost like a tunnel state. It's similar to people who've played Sonic, and you get that sort of, um, not the not Sonic 1, I should say, Sonic 2, where you gain the blue orbs and you get that sort of different perspective. It's sort of similar to that within the stage in Gradius 3. It's playing with some of the new technology with the perspective shifts, which, in my opinion, while, while cool-looking, uh, cause a lot of problems with you trying to avoid enemy bullets and ships. Right. Uh, now, the game offers three different ships to choose from, and then there are two more that are unlockable in the game. There are multiple difficulty levels, and uh, in the Japanese version, there's even a, a bonus difficulty level called free where you get unlimited continues but it disables the scoring yep that mode is actually disabled on the u.s version it's still in the code if you had a game shark you would probably enable it but it, it's still there it's just that they've taken out the option but the main hook of the game is the ability to take weapons known as gun pods from disabled or destroyed enemies uh, and, of course, there are multiple varieties to choose from, which we'll get into in more detail as we go along. Uh, you also get 10 continues during the course of the game to use to uh, complete it. And as you mentioned before, uh, the game has some fairly heavy inspiration from our type. Yeah, it's a very much a trial and error game. You have strict checkpoints on here. It's a slower paced game. It's definitely not going to th- try and throw as many bolts out of you as a Damaku game. 
uh, as we mentioned before, emphasis on memorization and patterns. And they're, especially when dealing with some of the later stages as everyone's favorite stage, stage four. Uh, routing levels is very helpful for survival and score. And again, excellent for stage four and for stage five. <clears throat> the strategic emphasis on weapon selection and usage. If you grab the run gun pod, you're likely to lead to untimely death. Yeah, <clears throat> with we'll talk about strategies coming back earlier in here, but it's... Interesting that I, if you were to pick up 10 different lawn plays of this or playthroughs on this and look at it, you see different people doing certain different things. So while I don't find a certain gun pod works for me, other people seem to be using it all the time. It it's, has enough variety that you can really mix and match and works really well for the game strength. But if you, if you're... Need, really need to pound on that boss with a grenade launcher or blade or what have you, and then you end up picking up the spreader. You're going to be in for a world of hurt. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it really is a situation where you have to be pretty cognizant of the weapons that you're picking up and when. Yeah, especially when you're go when you're dealing with <clears throat> some of the ones where your only weapons are the gun pods. But we'll get into that in just a little bit. Yes. So I guess let's jump into kind of talking about the gameplay and, um, you know, talk about the basics. Uh, first of all, the game has seven stages, seven base stages, I'll say, all but one of which take place at various locations on Earth as you disable different defensive capabilities of the Earth uh, forces from the Sodom colony. Uh, and then the final stage, stage eight, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it serves as an epilogue and then it pits you against the game's final boss, Hyperion, uh, which during the course of the game's plot, uh, you learn that uh, essentially as an agent of the moon, you went after all these Earth forces, but the Earth is pretty much already decimated. So there was no real reason to do that. So that's kind of where it brings in that more esoteric kind of uh, vibe is that it sort of gives you a vision that what if I wasn't fighting for any noble cause, but the war itself was the whole point. And so what if I was just a pawn in this whole game, you know, me as the pilot of this uh, fancy spaceship. Um, and so of course, then in the final stage, you're actually going after the moon's forces and disabling them so that they can't go and put down the final blow, so to speak, on the Earth and, uh, you know, to kind of level the playing field. Yeah, a lot of this is, if you watch any uh, videos on this or play the game yourself, you'll notice that it draws heavy inspiration from the movie Blade Runner with this neo-noir-style cities on there as you're going through this huge industrial, and then you get outside the city, and everything is just a wasteland. Oh, it's Mad Max land. It's everything on it is just as terrible to, as it is for the moon. And, and draw, and of course, as you previously mentioned, draws you into the final battle. It, it's something that at the, when I I have a, a history with this game when I I imported it when it first came out, and for someone who played previous shooters like Gradius and R-Type. For it to come in the story all of a sudden, like, hey, 
the guy, the people you were working for are now the enemies was a big deal at the time. Oh yeah, it was definitely shocking. Like, oh, this is really interesting on here, as well as I have to say the enemies and the enemy placement. There, it's interesting to see that all the the en- enemies in this game are for the most part based upon animals. Right. You, you, have, you have a gorilla, you have a cockroach on there, you have several things named after a bird. There is, was just, and of course the stingray at the end of level four. Very interesting and helps give the game a little bit more of an organic feel and feel like, hey, there's not, there's really not much wildlife. The earth is just decimated. So here, here we've created these monstrosities out of here. I mean, we're not approaching like Mecha Godzilla thing here but but it sort of gives you a little bit of, the, of that vibe it's a nice amalgamation of everything that has that was nice about japan at the time you had sp- your space battles coming from gundam on there you had your different mechas it, it was it pulls i guess what i'm thinking of is einhander pulls together desperate parts into a really well put together package it has very few flaws in a i really one of my favorite games on here so uh, if you hear me gush maybe a little bit too much on there you'll have to oh, keep me in no check. that's fine um so when you're fighting the enemies that carry the gun pods the the essentially the strategy is when you're when you're firing at the enemy once the name of the gun pod they're carrying displays on the screen that's when you've disabled them enough to be able to fly over and pick up the weapon without fear of crashing into that enemy and uh, dying Uh, now if you pick up a second one of the same gun pod you've already equipped you'll increase the ammo but if you pick up a new weapon that you haven't already equipped either you'll switch to that depending on which ship you have or you may pick that up in reserve uh, and then receive the default initial ammo for that weapon type that you've picked up. No, I just want to make a quick note here. The uh, amount of what ammo that you get from the gun pods varies depending upon the ship that you select. Yes, and it is different between the Japanese and U.S. releases of the game as well. There are some some differences in the ammo uh, amounts, uh, but at, for the purposes of this discussion, I we'll concentrate on just what the U.S. version has so we don't get too far down in the weeds. But uh, as as you collect the gun pods throughout the game, they will then unlock to for, for you to utilize them as kind of a pre-equipped weapon when you start the game. Uh, and so when you fire up a game and you select your ship, depending on what ship you select, you can choose which gun pod or gun pods you want to start with. And so as you collect the different weapons and utilize them, that unlocks them so that you have those as options for when you start the game. Uh, and that also applies for the secret unlockable weapons that we'll uh, be talking about a little bit later on here in the podcast. Yep. The other thing that we want to quickly mention here is the Einhander, or the one-arm itself, can be used as a weapon and to used to try and deflect bullets. It's not the greatest, but it will work in a yes. bit. The other thing that I haven't tried it yet, but I'm hearing, is that your the speed, you can increase and decrease the speed of your engines, and the exhaust from your engines 
or the blast that gets out of them when you speed up and slow down can destroy enemies. Oh, okay. I I didn't really try that, but uh, that's interesting. Hard to do. I suppose. Also, uh, if you don't destroy the bosses within uh, the time limit that's kind of prescribed in the game, some of them will time out and go away. There is at least one boss that I'm... I don't, I don't remember which one it is, uh, and there may be more than one that sort of does a suicide attack at you at the very last uh, if you don't take it out in time. But it's interesting that not all shooters do this, but some shooters have this this uh, feature where if you don't take out a boss in a certain amount of time, it just times out and you move on. Uh, and so this game does that, uh, but that does affect your scoring, which we'll get into later. Yeah, my favorite is the boss, the boss from stage five who doesn't exit stage left and just jumps into the background, sets off a flashbang, and then just jumps off the platform. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting uh, timeout when you kind of watch that play out like that. Would you uh, like to school us on the controls? All right, so controls are you press stuff on the controller and it works no. <laughs> All right, so the controls are your standard controls that you have you use the cross or the d-pad to move the the einhander or your ship i should say your ship around because there's different ships on there the square button shoots your top gun pound gun pod or machine gun whatever is equipped the x button shoots your bottom gun pod or machine gun whatever is equipped the circle button changes position of your gun pod that is assuming that you are not using the, oh, I forget the ship, the ship that uses, has two gun pods in use at any given time. Right. That that one, it will not choose. But basically, the circle button acts as a swing of your Einhander or your arm on there. And it's really useful for, to be using that button when we get to the plasma sword but we'll get, or lightsaber. We'll get to that in just a moment. The L2 and R2 would change your ship speed, L2 to decrease, and R2 to increase. This I found to be one of the most useful hidden features of the game. I couldn't find it mentioned anywhere, but as soon as I discovered it, certainly was changing the speed on there. Uh, I love games that allow you to set your own speed, a la Thunder Force, Lightning Force, or... Um, what's the one that we were playing recently here... I'll just say Thunder Force. Thunder Force. I don't like the, uh, you know, you're rolling across the skies till you get at least two or three power-ups style of <laughs> the Gradius series. Right. Or uh, probably, I mean, I, I love that. I love the Gradius series, but at least having to not having the option to control your speed. While I understand it, at the time it was created, it is a little bit of a detriment for me. Anyway, so uh, start. We'll pause the game. Yeah, and I, I gotta say the the speed adjustment thing is interesting. I played around with it just a little bit, but I found that the default speed of the ship was I'm not gonna say a sweet spot because it still felt slightly too fast for me. But it worked well enough that I kind of just stuck with it. Interesting. Yeah, for me, I thought it was not bad. But I always hit, hit it up one notch because it felt a little bit too slow. Mm. I, I want stuff to be, I want my ship to be fast and maneuverable. 
for when I'm attacking stuff, and it was crucial for using that within stage four when you're trying to take out all the flying geese or ducks or whatever you want to call them. Those really annoying birds that shoot the spread shot. Oh, yes. From maneuvering around that stage and attacking everything, having it set to one-up was great for me, and that's why in Gradius games it really feels extremely slow because I'm used to flying around the screen as almost as fast as I can. And we're not talking about rock on full blast speed here. Hmm. But, you know, to give people an example, I don't want Spaceball's ludicrous speed, but we'll want to take it down maybe one or two notches from there. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting because I, when when I start going too fast, like you said, you know, going one up from the default... That's when I feel like I'm just careening around the screen and I'm going to fly into an enemy or a bullet or uh, an obstacle on screen somehow and I'm going to destroy my ship. Uh, And so for me, I need to have a little bit more control over my trajectory. And I feel like I, if I'm too fast, I can't do that. So that's an interesting preference thing. The other thing that I that I forgot to put in here is that uh, the L1 and R1 will move your gun, will swap your gun pods around. Uh, And so I think that's only relevant for the one ship type where you could carry multiple gun pods and switch between them. Right. You carry three of them and then you have the default machine gun. Right. Which we will get to now. Oh, uh, real quick before we go on there, I, Definitely have to say that having the sh- variable ship speed and dealing with that, it's not only subject to your own likes and wants, it's also very much subject to your controller. The controller I was using was a Afterglow for the PS3, which is wired, but it has a very nice circular dire- circular D-pad, so I-, I could just really move that, move that around almost... A- like an analog stick and it became really useful for that. But if I was trying to play on the regular PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3 cross, the, the broken cross, there's no way I would be able to do it with that speed. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And of course I was playing on, uh, my original PlayStation with, a one of my original DualShock 2 pads. And so of course the interesting, uh, cross pad or D pad on the PlayStation controller is a little bit different from, you know, kind of the traditional D-pad that we think of from NES controllers or even a Genesis. And so it's a little bit different application in a game like this. All right. Would you like to take us on to the ship types? Absolutely. There are three primary craft that you can select from at the start of the game. You have the Endymion FRS Mark II uh, that is equipped with a single machine gun that has unlimited ammo, but you can carry up to three gun pods at once, uh, although you can only equip one at a time. Uh, Now, the gun pods can be oriented to either the top or the bottom of the craft, and then this ship also receives less ammo than the others when you're picking up gun pods because you can stockpile more of them than any of the other ships. I started with this ship as kind of my default because I wanted the ability to carry more gun pods around with me. As I was playing through the game, however, 
until I got a better handle on moving around the screen, dodging bullets, and memorizing levels and stuff, I found that I was constantly picking up gun pods that I didn't want, and also having a harder time managing the gun pods, because when you're carrying the three different gun pods, if you go to pick up, say, a second of a gun pod that you already have, but it's not the one you have equipped, if you pick another one of those up, it'll augment the ammo count that you have for that gun pod, but it then also switches to that weapon immediately. And sometimes that can be a real detriment because uh, you're relying on the weapon that you're using, and then when you switch to the new weapon, especially depending on which one it is, it may not fire in the direction that you want or in the location that you want because some weapons position differently. And we'll get into that more when we break down the actual weapons. Um, but I found that trying to manage everything that I'm seeing on doing on screen, plus switching back and forth between my gun pods, plus using the circle button to move the gun pod to the appropriate position, depending on which one I picked up, uh, became a little bit hairy. And so I, I quickly abandoned this ship uh, for other choices because I wanted something that was uh, where I had a little bit less to deal with. What about you? Me? This was the ship I chose because my play style fit this ship. On here, I, I have the machine gun, which I use for sort of my popcorn enemies on here. It was the standard. But then for the Mark III, the three gun pods I tried to keep in use at all time was a light, a heavy, and then a special. So I would start out, once I unlocked the Vulcan, I'd start with, uh, excuse me, the Juno. I'd start with the Juno, then I'd grab the Vulcan, and then I would grab the uh, grenade launcher or something. on there. In order to make it through this game, my general strategy was to use the machine gun to help mitigate some of the popcorn enemies but mainly use the Vulcan because it doesn't have it's not as strong as the regular machine gun but it has a faster rate of fire so it really helped mow down these uh, popcorn enemies and I saw some uh, high level players actually just use a Vulcan for attacking a lot of stuff it's interesting but anyways so using the Vulcan as deleting killing out popcorn or basically narrowing down some enemies exposing weak spots and then uses something like the grenade launcher or the hedgehog mainly the grenade launcher to quickly do some major damage to the boss before it could do anything that really helped with my survival rate hmm. on there and i was i was almost able to uh, i think at the second to last stage i believe on there for like stage six the end of stage six on normal, just using that strategy for me with that ship. Here, I've I've seen all sorts of different types on here, but at least for me, it was always popcorn and heavy. Always make sure you have a popcorn and heavy, and you can alternate between those two. Heavy for the bosses and mid bosses, and popcorn to quickly dis quickly kill anything else that came on screen and disable the boss's defenses. Worked really well for the spider. The spider you can kill within just a couple seconds using the grenade launcher. The uh, little shrimp enemy, <laughs> I can't believe they call it the shrimp, but the little shrimp enemy that's in the stage two mid boss, mm. 
Uh, that thing can really be quickly taken out with, well, especially with a grenade launcher, but even with the Vulcan. You get right, the Vulcan, if you up your speed and then you get right up inside it and start point blanking it with a Vulcan, it won't have any time to react. Huh. And you can just keep, keep knocking off parts of it and keep going and going and going. But it's what's really great about this and what's great about this game is that my strategy is completely different than yours, but it's still 100% valid. Huh, that's cool. The next ship is the Endymion FRS Mark III, and this ship has a dual machine gun that is always equipped. It has unlimited ammo, uh, and it only has a single manipulator arm, which means you can only carry one gun pod at a time. Now, as the Mark II, the gun pod can be either situated on the upper or lower position. And for me, and I'll say this is a good for good for beginners kind of ship, because the dual machine gun is powerful enough to deal damage and take out popcorn enemies, and also is relatively good against um, what I would call medium enemies. You know, things like the larger ships that carry gun pods, or some of the enemies that take a little bit more damage. Uh, the dual machine gun still works pretty well against those. And as you said before, the the standard machine gun is more powerful than the Vulcan. Uh, but I have to worry less about the rate of fire when you're dealing double that damage with the dual machine gun. Uh, and so in some ways you could see the Mark III as the easy mode in the game. But for me, I kind of settled into the Mark III about two-thirds of the way through the month, one of the people who has been attending my streams, Pondering Ghost, he suggested that, and that ended up being a pretty good strategy for me, uh, just because by that point I had learned the levels real well, and so I could focus only on the one gun pod that I wanted to keep around, and so I always used a, a heavy gun pod, or I started to use a heavy gun pod toward the end of the month, and um, really went for that kind of high damage, you know, sub-weapon, so to speak, versus just the machine guns. Yeah, you were doing pretty close to the same thing I was doing. You were just using, um, having less weapons management to deal with. Because you're still using the machine gun for the popcorn and de dealing with damage to the outer defenses of the boss and then going right in there with your heavy gun pod and shooting at the boss. Right. And I kind of vac vacillated between the grenades, the Juno, and the flash with that. Ultimately, I settled on starting with the flash equipped and then kind of using that up sometime between the first boss and the second stage mid-boss where in the section along with the train that there are a couple of enemies that will have uh, grenade pickups. And so then I would use those to uh, then take out the shrimp, I guess you called it. Uh, and then that works really well. The grenade works really well for bosses and flash works pretty well for bosses as well. But unfortunately it's low ammo as we'll get into here in a little bit. The third primary ship that is available to you from the start is the Astrea FGA Mark. And uh, this ship is unique in that you can carry and equip two gun pods at the same time. 
Uh, and so it does have a built-in machine gun, but since you can equip two weapons at one time, it's always going to defer to those weapons until you run out of ammo. Uh, and so you have to take care when you're collecting and equipping weapons, however, to make sure that, uh, let's say you've got a Vulcan on top and a cannon on the bottom, if that's the way you want to leave them, then when you go to collect a cannon from the enemy, you want to make sure you fly into it from above so that it is filling up and equipping on the bottom space where you have that cannon already situated. Otherwise, uh, you either need to switch them around so that the cannon's on top, or you're going to end up with two cannons. Now, the two cannons on this are not necessarily detriment because with two weapons, two of the same type of gun pod, it actually makes both of them more powerful in their hits. But at the same time, it's this. I would say this: if the other one was easy mode, this would be the hard mode because you really have to make sure you're managing all your shots and what you're doing at any given time. Yeah, and and uh, watching Sarah stream the game, this was actually his favorite ship. And so he goes in and picks up weapons situationally. Uh, but he's played the game enough, I think, that he has a pretty good handle on when to pick up certain weapons and how to collect them so that he can situate them how he wants on the ship itself. And, you know, I've seen him do that and do a pretty good job of, of managing the gun pods in that way. Uh, but for me... I played with it for a little while and I had some success with it, but that isn't really, it doesn't really suit my playstyle very well. And I found myself accidentally collecting gun pods because I got too close or an enemy would die and then the gun pod would be kind of flung in my direction and I would be back toward the back of the screen and end up collecting it just because I couldn't, I couldn't maneuver away from it. Uh, and so sometimes like that, you, you really get into a, a bad situation because you just can't, <laughs> you can't escape it. Yeah, it's definitely not something that I would tell somebody to select on their first try. For sure. I, I think it takes a little bit more knowledge and command of the game to really get the most out of it. Uh, and then there are two different ships in the game that you can unlock with different conditions. Uh, the first one is what's called the, and I'm probably going to butcher this because I, I can't speak German, but the Die Schabe, or something along those lines, uh, which translates as the cockroach. And these, this is like one of those police ships that fly in and that you shoot a whole bunch of in the very first stage. In order to unlock this ship, there are two different methods. One is by obtaining 15 of the secret bonuses in a single playthrough, uh, and there are 21 total, so that's uh, a little over two-thirds. And then the other method is complete the game on a single credit and die no more than twice. So I haven't unlocked this ship yet, but uh, it's interesting because I was watching Sarah do a playthrough with this, and the way this works is this ship doesn't equip gun pods in the same way that the Einhander vessels do. When you collect gun pods, it actually just augments the 
power of the built-in machine gun. So you go from a single machine gun to a double to a triple and then finally to a quadruple machine gun. So you have a lot of forward firepower. But then depending on which gun pod you select, that also gives you a secondary effect. Uh, so the spreader will give you more of a spread out shot. Uh, the, the Vulcan will give you kind of a minor spread. Uh, the Wasp will give you kind of homing shots and different things like that. And so it kind of adds a secondary effect to the the fire that you, is coming out of that ship. But it's it's neat to watch that one being played because it really changes the dynamics of the game. And for the most part, you want to collect as many gun pods as you can get your hands on because A, you get bonus points for that at the end of the stage, and B, you want to be able to power your ship up as quickly as possible and uh, be able to make use of all the different capabilities of that ship. So in a lot of ways, it turns Einhander into slightly more of a of an old-school traditional shooter, but still having a lot of the trappings and accoutrement, so to speak, of the game itself. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting middle ground between what Einhander is and was designed to be and a more classic side-scroller. You quickly mentioned the secret bonuses on there and you know how there's 21 of them in the game. We, I don't believe we've gone into explanation on what those are just yet. Essentially, there are... Each stage has three possible... Uh, each of the first seven stages, I'll say, has three possible secret bonuses that you can unlock uh, where you have the ability to perform certain actions or meet certain requirements in order to unlock a secret bonus where you get additional points and you know can can change the game in some ways by way of example in the first stage there's uh because you're kind of there's a backdrop of this cityscape and there's one section where the perspective changes to where instead of a a full 2d view it's sort of a faux 3D thing where you're sort of looking behind the ship at an angle. And as you're flying down this corridor of buildings, there are all these neon signs. And one of the secret bonuses can be obtained by shooting all the neon signs off the sides of these buildings. There's another secret bonus in that first stage where there, the mid-boss... Uh, is sort of like this hovercraft robot thing. And if you defeat that boss by only shooting off its hover portion at the bottom, uh, not only do you get a secret bonus, but then that unlocks an alternate path in the first level where you go a different, a different way and you take on different enemies as you would in the main portion of the stage when uh, you go through to kind of the last half of the stage yeah there's a lot of this in here that i love is there's so many different secrets and different paths on here this game has a really even with the extra different types of vehicles on there and the gun pods there's a lot of replayability in discovering new secrets and new techniques and it is one of the things that i think has ensured its longevity yeah and you know, we can mention a few of those secret bonuses here. You know, we're not going to go into all of them because there's 21 of them. 
Um, there are good FAQs online that have already broken that down really well. And so I would encourage anyone who's interested in the game or, you know, maybe you've got a copy that's been collecting dust on your shelf and you haven't given it proper time, go look up an FAQ and dig into all the secrets because that may give you uh, a really good reason to go back to the game. Uh, the other unlockable ship in the game is considered the ultimate ship in the game. It is the EOS UFG Mark IX. And you unlock that by beating the game on hard using two continues or less. Uh, so I definitely haven't unlocked this ship yet. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's modeled after the ships in uh, the final stage. And much like the Astrea, uh, you can equip dual gun pods. The thing that makes it the ultimate ship, though, is when you collect a weapon power-up, you automatically get 9,999 ammo. So, no matter how you equip this ship, you will be loaded for bear. And I can't even imagine playing the game with this craft. It, it must be insane. And it's like sort of the ultimate shmup power fantasy. Yeah, this I believe also that this is, the ship is red, if I remember correctly. But I could be wrong in remembering that. Mm, yeah, I think you might be right. So, we should probably start talking about since we've kind of been mentioning them here along the lines, we should probably start talking about the various gun pod types that you can collect throughout the game. Definitely. I'll get started on here. It's the gun pod types. It's very interesting how the gun pod types, the majority of the good ones are obtained from destroying enemies on earth. There's not the part of the story is that the moon doesn't have the natural resources it needs to survive. So it has to invade earth. And the Earth is so decimated, there's not much left. But it, it's, it's sort of interesting that all of the stuff that you're going to need to advance here is found on the Earth or pulled from Earth ships. Starting off, we have the Vulcan, which is a low-powered machine gun with lots of ammo. It starts with 750 rounds. If it's equipped on the Austria, in the top position, it doesn't shift position. Otherwise, like most weapons, as you move your ship around, a gun pod will aim slightly in one direction or another based upon the centrifugal force, the opposite the direction you're moving. Top position faces forward, bottom position faces forward, but angles slightly downward. This, at least in my opinion, is the most versatile weapon in the game. You get lots of ammo on here, and it's great for taking out popcorn enemies. Especially love using it against the birds on stage four for really cleaning them up before they can shoot their spread shot all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I used the Vulcan quite a bit throughout the month. I kind of got tired of it toward the end of the month because it just was, I reached a point where it just wasn't powerful enough. But if you're using the, the ship with three gun pods, I can see how this would be a good asset to kind of team up with uh, the single machine gun for between the two mowing down popcorn enemies and really doing a lot of crowd control. Definitely. Next up, we have the spreader, which shoots a spread of five bullets. If equipped in the top position, it'll fire backwards. If the bottom position, it fires forward. It starts with 90 rounds. It's not very powerful, but does a pretty good job of taking out popcorn enemies and it's also one of the only two weapons that can fire behind your ship. 
this works out okay. I mean, you mainly are stuck using it for stage five, depending upon your situation. But for the majority of the time, you're going to be using this in order to shoot. It, it, it does a job, but there are definitely other gun pods I would rather use. How about you? Yeah, you know, when I started playing and uh, I started using the the Endymion Mark II, I collected the spreader in stage one specifically to help with crowd control and making sure that I was able to take out as many popcorn enemies kind of at one time as possible. But yeah, I quickly found that it's not really much more powerful than the Vulcan, and its fire rate is so slow that it really is very situational at best, I think. Yeah, I d definitely agree with that. Now, coming on to the next one here, the cannon. That's one of my favorites. It fires a powerful shot that will rip through most small enemies very quickly and is powerful enough to take out a small ro row of craft in a single blast. It starts with a pretty low ammo count of 25 rounds. On the Austria, both compound positions will face straight forward. Otherwise, the top position will face forward but angled upwards. The bottom position faces straight forward. This is one of my favorite weapons for really, if you don't have a grenade on here or a blade or something that's really going to hit hit hard, the cannon will definitely do a great job of doing that. Some of the fun things I like to do just for messing around with the cannon is to put in the up position so it's facing upward at an angle and just go, those little slow moving ships that have each have a single gun pot on, they're, uh, I don't know what the German name is but they're referred to as snails mm. it is the animal they're supposed to represent here sure you know what what i'm sure there's a joke there what's your ein Hunter spirit animal but <laughs> <laughs> but getting underneath them and just blasting with the cannon fire is just a little fun thing to do but against bosses this works well as a great substitute for the uh whatever heavy weapon you're using and will really mow down enemies pretty quickly yeah, my my biggest problem with the cannon is that you just don't get enough ammo. The only time where I feel like they give you enough ammo is in stage 5 when there are a ton of enemies that have the cannon and if you can destroy them and are able to actually collect those those cannons, then you can really do a lot of damage because you can load up with uh, well over a hundred rounds of cannon ammo, but I found that in order to take out enemies quickly enough with either a single machine gun or when using the Astrea and trying to use something like the Vulcan as my popcorn enemy kind of thing, trying to take out some of the medium-sized enemies or the, the enemies that need a little bit more, you know, to take a little bit more damage before they go down... I, I find that I burn through cannon ammo way too fast and I can't hold on to the cannon long enough to really build up an ammo base because I just I just use it too fast. Fair enough. With the cannon on there, the most use I get out of it usually is with stage two. A lot of the time as you're... I know that when you reach sort of the middle of there and you have those radar towers, the ones with the... Uh, where you have the raising and lowering of the of the different types of turrets on their wasps versus you know Vulcan and all those ones. 
the cannon works really well there because you can just get right up to them and one shot will take out the radar station and put you on your way. Right. It doesn't give you the secret bonus, but it does a really good job of punching holes through stuff. The, the other thing about the cannon that I like, in especially in Stage 2, is when you start to get the big groupings of those drone enemies that come at you, they kind of come out at you in a line. And if you can time it right and line up the ship just right, you can do one cannon blast that'll go all the way across the screen and rip through every one of those enemies. And so you can get the huge score bonus by taking your multiplier up really high really quickly. Uh, and then, you know, you get additional points for that as we'll cover in more detail when we go into scoring. Uh, and so that's a really nice use of the cannon. Um, but unfortunately, like I said, I just burned through the ammo too quickly for it to be super useful for me. Now, moving on to the Wasp here. The Wasp fires missiles and is somewhat powerful. In the top position, the missiles become homing projectiles and can even attack targets in the background. In the bottom position, missiles simply fire forward. Starts with 45 rounds. This is one of those things I thought originally was cool in the beginning of the month and then after using this a couple times, I pretty much just avoid it unless I actually absolutely need a gun pod. It, it just, it, it's not powerful enough to, to act as a heavy weapon, but it's not fast enough to act against for popcorn enemies for me. It's just sort of stuck in the middle and doesn't really do much that I can't do better with other gun pods. Yeah, for me, the only time this was useful is in areas where there were background enemies and I could take them out. You know, it's fun, uh, like in the first stage, at the very end as you're going down the corridor, sort of being escorted by the three police ships, the three cockroaches, if you will, um, toward the first boss. If you have it equipped in the top position, of course, you can use the homing missile piece to, um, to go and take those out. But then you, you know, situations like that are really the only time that it's, I found it to be super useful. Uh, or, you know, specifically the, the mid boss in stage five, I think it is where, you know, he goes into the background quite a bit, this sort of robo ape thing. Uh, and it's, it's good to be able to continue to pelt him with missiles. But again, like you said, it's not that powerful. Uh, and so it, you just, I, this is another one where I run out of ammo too fast. Yeah, the, the only time where I'd say it was actually required is to unlock the Python in Stage 5 to hit the... Uh, to me, uh, it's supposed to be a baggage carrier or something, but it looks like the sand crawler from, uh, that the Jawas use in uh, Star Wars Episode 4 to me. <laughs> nice. Uh, moving on to the riot. The riot fires a lightning bolt type of blast. Pressing the button fires a short burst. Holding down the button longer will charge it fully for a longer, more powerful blast. The longer the weapon is charged, the more ammo it uses, up to a maximum of 10, maybe 12 rounds per blast. In the top position, it's angled upward somewhat, and the bottom position is angled downward somewhat. Functions somewhat like a melee weapon because of its limited range, and it starts with 120 rounds. This, for me, was something that I, I almost never picked up. 
I used it for trying to destroy the stage one mid bosses hover a couple different times, but it was just there's so much more uh, for for what I'm looking for in the game. It didn't really do much. I would prefer to either have the grenade, the blade, the Juno, or the uh, the flash or the uh, Vulcan. This is something that I picked up maybe once or twice during the entire playthrough. Wow. I experimented with this weapon some. Uh, sometimes when I would run out of whatever the primary weapon that I was using, and this was kind of the most powerful current option at that moment. Uh, and then there were other times when there was one available, and I wasn't really gelling with whatever weapon I was playing with, so I tried it out. It's a cool weapon. And I think it looks awesome. I love the whole kind of lightning blast effect of it. And if you use it correctly, it can be effective and powerful. You know, specifically in stage four, if you can time it right and do charge blasts against the group, you know, putting it on the bottom of the ship and do charge blasts against the group of kind of bird enemies that you talk about uh, as they sweep up from the bottom or... You know, kind of taking out those floating weapon pod carriers and and stuff like that. Or in uh, Stage 5, when you've got these kind of floating uh, deals that take a lot of damage. And if you don't take them out before you pass by them, they'll sort of detonate and shoot out a spread of things at you. And so the riot's good for those kinds of things. We're taking out ground-based mechs and large enemies that, that take more damage in order to take them down. But yeah, it's, again, it's somewhat situational. There's not a lot of them in the game and it can be more difficult to use. So I think this is one of those weapons that is probably better served for experienced players who can kind of get the most out of the game and have memorized the level layout and everything to the point where they know exactly when this weapon is the most useful. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm sure there's some sort of high-level play that we don't know about that uses this, but for us, it's something that is extremely situational. Moving on to the next gun pod, we have the Hedgehog, also known as Death From Above. This one fires short-range explosive charges. It starts with 75 rounds. The top position fires bombs straight up, and the bottom position fires them straight down. It's really useful against bosses, but if you're trying to take out popcorn or anything else like that, forget it. Uh, it's sort of cool to try and just mess with this on the spider-slash-gecko boss, on the mid-boss on stage 3. Uh, the end of stage 5 It's also pretty useful on there with... I don't know what that thing is supposed to be, but the it's sort of got this like droopy neck shooting out there. The one that where they comes out and he gets armor and then takes off into the air. Mm, yeah, yeah, that one on there is very useful to use the hedgehog against. For me, I would definitely prefer the grenade. Yeah, for me, the hedgehog is too short range. Uh, that's that's what. Besides the fact that it's you can only fire it straight up or straight down, and so. You either have to really mitigate the popcorn enemies so that you can then occasionally fire off a hedgehog blast when 
you can be right on top of something bigger. But again, this is one of those weapons that I think requires a lot more situational use and also a lot more kind of spatial awareness of where your ship is in, in relation to enemies, obstacles, bullets, etc. You You really have to have the level memorized or know it more intimately before a weapon like this becomes truly useful because uh, you really have to know how, when, and where to position yourself in order to really get the most out of it. Yeah, I definitely agree on it. It's something where you really have to have spatial control in order to get moving out. Now, our next weapon, the grenade removes the space limitations but gives you the same amount of power i love this weapon it launches grenades in a arc motion starts with 45 rounds in the top position it lops grenades forward in the bottom position will drop them behind in short arc this is the other weapon that can be fired behind your ship here this is my go-to for taking out bosses mid bosses quickly you use the Vulcan to quickly open up the def- as much as you can the defenses and then use a grenade to just completely obliterate the boss. On stage four with a little yo-yo enemy, there, this thing just kills it. And even with the, spy- the spider slash gecko, that thing just catches on fire and falls off within less than a minute. Yeah, this was one of my favorite weapons. And this is one of those things where when I started out the game and I kind of shifted toward the Mark III with the dual machine gun, this is the kind of weapon that I can wield with that to where the dual machine gun will be enough to take out all the popcorn and most of the mid-size enemies. I could lob the occasional grenade when I needed to, to get a little bit more clearing the field or or take out a, a mid-size enemy a little faster. But otherwise, I kind of saved it for bosses and, you know, really hairy situations. Or certain thing, times situationally, like in, uh, uh, what is it, stage three, when you're kind of flying down the big uh, silo or the big shaft in uh, stage three, there's a couple of instances where some enemies will come in and they will fly around relative to your position. And one enemy in particular that will fly down and barely be visible other than the hedgehog that's on the top of it. And so I found it was useful to take the grenade and flip it around so that it was on the bottom, fly over kind of in front of him and then sort of lob a grenade or two in his direction to try and take him out so that he wouldn't uh, snipe me with the hedgehog. Yeah, those ones are a little bit pain in the butt there on stage three with the way the positional enemies on there. I assume you're talking about the one with the, uh, they're sort of on lines, like laser laser lines as they're rappelling down. No, the these are like the, when you first take out the, the first group of, of enemies or whatever, then there are these three ships that sort of drop down from the top of the screen and then come up and two of them will kind of fly up toward you with your position. One has a blade uh, that is on the left side of the screen. The middle one is the one that kind of goes down. It's got the hedgehog 
uh, and then the far one has a cannon. But it's that middle one. If you can, if you can manage to take out the first two, that middle one will kind of still hover toward the bottom of the screen. Only if you fly up toward the top of the screen and kind of lure him up will he move up far enough to where you can kind of rush back down and and shoot at him again. But otherwise, the grenade is good if you keep him toward the bottom of the screen for uh, kind of taking him out. Whereas a lot of the weapons, you can't do that. Gotcha. Okay. Now, uh, speaking of the blade, uh, I mean lightsaber, with this laser sword weapon, much like a lightsaber from Star Wars, you can cut down and through enemies like a hot knife through butter. I thought it was hot butter through a knife. <laughs> it is if you listen to uh, Retro Game Squad. It is. <laughs> it's extremely short range, however. Do a Hadouken move on the controller when you activate it, and you can extend its range, but that uses even more ammo. That starts with 600 rounds, changing the gun pod location while it's active will slash at enemies with a sword-like manner. This doesn't work with Australia, however, because... That's that one's has the again we mentioned the gun pods are locked in that one. There the ammo quickly drains while the button is held down to extend the blade. So watch your ammo level closely while using this weapon. For me, this was in a little bit of a practical weapon, but this is just sort of like the weapon that I was goofing around with most of the time. Just like look at me and, and just like trying to slice and dice things. You know, it, it's. You know, it definitely was amateur hour for me with this weapon. It wasn't anything that I was taking seriously yet. Again, my main two were the Juno slash Vulcan and then the grenade. But it's still fun to use, and it's one of those things that looks cool, and you don't see this very often in other shooters or STGs. The real question is, is it a Ginsu blade, and can it make julienne fries? Oh, now you got me wanting some julienne fries. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is one of those weapons where, for me, yeah, it was very much me goofing around, just kind of checking all the weapons out. Very situational. There were a few times when it was useful, uh, in particular in stage seven, when you're trying to take out the the rocket boosters on this spaceship that's launching from earth toward the moon in order to take out the rocket boosters you have to get right up up by those boosters and without going into the path of the flame try to take out the the booster itself well when you run out of whatever weapon or weapons you're using as ships come in and kind of accost you while you're trying to take out that booster at least one of them generally will carry a blade. Well, that's good for this situation because you can literally just sit there and hold the button down with the blade extended and right into that rocket booster in order to do a fair bit of damage for it. And it's a, it's a high damage weapon, but because you really have to be in close, it's a hard one to, uh, to wield. Yeah, this, you know what's sort of funny about it? I was just thinking if they ever did do a HD remake or put this on the Switch, somebody would have the bright idea of putting motion control with this. The blade weapon, you can move it around. Just move your nunchuck around <laughs> as you're slicing and dicing. <laughs> I'd see someone using like motion controls for moving the, the either that or you know swipe sideways or make a Z in order to extend the blade. And there, I'm sure that somewhere that's going to come up. 
Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you swipe in a semicircle to extend the Einhander arm, and then you put him back. I'm sure that would be coming this day and age. I was going to say, they somebody should have done that on the Wii U, and, uh, you know, like the wonderful 101 where you draw your your weapon types on the screen to tell it what what kind of weapon you wanted to make. Huh. Uh, well, if they can't get lightsaber battles correctly, I don't I don't have high hopes for this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go on to the unlockable secret weapons. We'll start off with the Juno. It's similar to the Vulcan cannon, but it's way, way more powerful. Available in Stage 1 if all three secret bonuses are achieved, as well as Stage 4 by destroying the submarine hull and then the control unit on top, which is pretty hard to do. If you're going to be destroying this, this is how I unlocked it, is I took out the grenade, and as soon as the submarine comes online, you start hitting it hard with a grenade, and then it will immediately st stop, and the uh, control pod will come up, then you, almost immediately you got to hit the control pod, because if you don't, it's going to fire out a huge spread that's almost impossible to avoid. Yeah. So if you can hit that and you can take care of that, then you've unlocked the Juno. Uh, then we also the last part you can unlock the Juno is in stage seven from the last red enemy. Like the Vulcan, the top position fires forward and the bottom position is forward but angled downward. Top position will be, stay perfectly forward on Australia and it starts with 450 rounds. Which goes through pretty quickly. Yeah, and that that's my biggest problem with the Juno. I like how powerful it is. I like how it gives you the versatility of the Vulcan, but because you run through that ammo so fast, uh, even though it's more powerful, it's still much like the cannon uh, is hard to hold on to. Now, I prefer it to the cannon because it does give you more ammo, and if you can kind of shoot it off in short bursts, you can make that work a little bit better. But uh, it's it's a good weapon. I, I just... Uh, I wish there were more opportunities to to refill it. Definitely. it doesn't, For me, it feels like it does run out too soon. Alright, moving on to our second lockable weapon, Sir Flash. I'm sorry, Flash. <laughs> it's similar to the cannon, but fires a very powerful laser. It starts with 45 rounds. In the top position, it fires straight ahead. In the bottom position, it's angled downward somewhat. The Flash laser... Were, it, the quick idea of this is it's very similar to the right gun in the way that it looks. The flash laser will penetrate the hull of an enemy so the blast can affect enemies behind it. Stage 3, the third secret bonus, uses this weapon by destroying the big quote-unquote enemy dumper at the top of the screen and then subsequently destroying every piece of garbage that falls out of it after being disabled. If done correctly, the flash will descend from the bottom of the enemy. Also, in Stage 5, the second secret bonus result in a red box with a flash inside. This is The flash for me was one of those things that was a lot of fun to unlock, but I didn't actually use it very much in my style of playthrough. It's pretty hard to actually unlock on Stage 3. In there, you're going to be just hitting immediately, and then you to actually hit everything on there, I ended up having to use either the Vulcan or the Juno in order to effectively destroy all the trash that comes out of the trash chute. Did you use the same strategy for this? 
Uh, yeah, when when I initially unlocked it, that's how I ended up doing it. Uh, it is difficult to get all of the garbage that comes out of there unless you use an enemy like that, uh, or a, excuse me, a cannon like that, or a weapon like that. So uh, I only managed to unlock it the one time, and then at one other point during play, I managed to pull that off a second time while I had the flash, or while I was playing. I don't remember if I had run out of flash up to that point or not, but but I managed to get it a second time. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's a difficult feat to pull off, but I, for me, I think this is kind of like the penultimate weapon in the game, because it's so powerful. Um, and I vacillate between this and the grenade. The thing that gives this a slight edge over the grenade is not only is it super powerful, but like the cannon, it penetrates enemies. And this actually can go through the hull of any enemy. So any midsize or large enemy, you cut right through them and you, uh, so you can damage multiple enemies at a time and use it to take out full lines of popcorn. Or if there are multiple midsize or large enemies on the screen, damage or take them all out at once in a line with the flash the the biggest detriment is that it's so low ammo yeah um, this one is one of the ones that i, I want to try a little bit more at but it, it's mo a little bit more of a pinpoint weapon for me in something that I, I guess i would just have to play a little bit more in order to find a better use for at least with my current playthrough or playthrough strategy yeah Moving on to Unlockable Weapon 3, the Mosquito. And in my opinion, it's aptly named because I think it sucks. Uh, <laughs> uh, similar to the Wasp, but after firing a missile, its trajectory can be controlled by moving your ship. Obviously, you need to be aware of your surroundings while using this weapon. Here, it starts with 45 rounds. To obtain it in the second half of Stage 4, you take the bottom path immediately. There should be a barrel with a mosquito inside, and you're going to have to shoot backwards in order to get that, so you're going to need that spreader. But overall, this this weapon on here is forgettable for me. It's more of a curio. You're, it's one of those things within, in a STG or shooting game where, like, oh, that's a really cool idea, but in practice it just falls flat on there. It's not something that I see anybody use unless it's sort of like a dare or somebody trying to show off on how good they are at the game. Yeah, I I managed to get to that spot with the spreader so that I could put it in the bottom position and fire backward long enough to unlock it and, and grab it. So I unlocked it, but other than that one time, I've never used it, and I did not find it to be any more powerful or any more useful than the wasp, which I already didn't find all that useful other than situationally in, in some spots. So I never really did anything with it other than unlocking it. Um, all right. Moving on to the fourth and last secret weapon, the Python. There's only one way to earn this gun pod and that is to use a wasp gun pod it's homing warheads to destroy a large Java sand crawler slash luggage delivery vehicle in the background of stage five. 
This sand crawler is near the beginning of stage 5 of the airfield as a backdrop. Only the WASP homing missiles can take down the enemy since it never enters your fighter's direct line of fire. Be sure to destroy this enemy when it is on screen so it blows up or the python gumpod may not appear. It is happened to me. I, I shot and I'm like, oh, here, I'm about to collect and then it bounced in, almost immediately off screen. It, so I, I technically unlocked it, but haven't had a chance to use this one yet. Yeah, and this one I never actually unlocked. I think in stage five, there's so much going on that I never really paid enough attention to when that sand crawler thing comes on screen. And honestly, because I am not a huge fan of the wasp, I rarely had it equipped in stage five enough or long enough to uh, actually pull that off. So I just never unlocked it. Fair enough. In some ways, it's sort of like saying, all right. Uh, I guess a good analogy would be punch out and say, make sure watch this guy in the background. And when his camera flashes, that's when you want to punch ball bowl. And in the meantime, you're thinking, okay, well, um, I'll just work on my timing. <laughs> Can sit there and look at something in the background here. Uh, neat, and something fun to do, but it'll be something that I just don't see myself coming back to the game for. Right. The One of the things that we touched on a little bit earlier, is, I guess it's not really a secret weapon, but the last slash gun pod is the one that you start with. The manipular arm the gun pod is attached to can be used as a weapon if no gun pod is present. Pressing the button to activate it will cause it to jut out from the ship based on the direction you're moving. It can also be used to deflect some enemy fire. Similarly, gun pods also provide you with some level of protection as incoming enemy bullets will damage your gun pod of craze, but not destroy your ship. You know, looking at this here with a um, mechanical or manipulator arm, in some ways it reminds me of the claw from those claw games. Imagine that it'd be really hard within if this were real life to actually try and get that. I can't ever win any of those prizes on those claw games to try and reach out a gun pod from a destroyed ship. Yeah, and this is one of those funny things that I think about where you know you hear about the you know when a plane when a plane crashes uh they go for the information in the black box and supposedly the black box is indestructible or near indestructible so then the question becomes why don't they make the whole plane out of what comprises the black box um similarly if the manipulator arm and the gun pods have the ability to deflect or protect you against some level of enemy fire, why don't they just make the whole ship out of that so that it's not one hit death? <laughs> well, there's an answer for that in the story, or should I say there's a cop-out for that in the story. They only had enough natural resources on the moon in order to make that arm. They couldn't coat the entire ship. That's why you're invading Earth. Of course. And Yep, that and the claw game, so that way you can get better at it. Right. Yeah, and, and the the interesting thing about using the gun pods as uh, shields, so to speak, is, I don't know, it's an interesting concept. Using the cannon, for example, when it's mounted on the bottom of the ship, because the cannon is such a long weapon, it provides you quite a defense against enemy fire coming from below. 
The interesting thing, though, is as your gun pod takes damage, it can actually reach a point where it goes away. And so when you're looking at the bottom left of the screen and you see the gun pod or gun pods that you have equipped, when you're when your gun pod takes damage, you know, those those uh, squares or, or icons on the screen that show you what you have will change from green to yellow and then yellow to red and kind of start flashing uh, when it's damaged to the point of you need to pick up another one to A, give you more ammo and B, refresh its health, so to speak, before you damage it to the point where you'll lose it. And it's also interesting that not only can you deflect certain enemy fire, but in this game, when you fly down toward the ground or up toward a wall or whatever, you don't automatically, your ship doesn't automatically get destroyed when you do that. Um, when you fly down toward the wall, generally speaking, your manipulator arm will kind of show that it's, you know, it's taking damage or it's moving around a little bit. Um, so if you move down toward the bottom of the screen, for example, and there's a floor or there's a, an obstacle or whatever, if you run into that with your gun pod, it's going to take damage. So you have to be aware of your position on screen and all of that stuff so that you're not damaging your, your gun pods too much. Yeah, it's also nice that you can take out the gun pods of the enemies on there. There are several times this like on, on the train level where I didn't want a particular gun pod, but I didn't want the enemy shooting at me. So I just aimed for the gun pod and then immediately went for the enemy's weak point for uh, massive damage afterwards. Right. That's something that you have to be aware of as well, because if you're trying to collect a certain gun pod, you got to make sure to shoot the enemy, not the gun pod, because otherwise you kind of have, it's almost like a friendly fire situation in certain games or, you know, beat em ups where you can, actually harm your co-op partner you know you can you can destroy the the weapon you want to pick up i did that one time in stage two after i had the flash equipped you know you've got those kind of two-legged atat type uh, or atst type walker things that would carry gun pods on the top and i would kind of swoop in and take out all the popcorn enemies with my dual machine gun and then i would shoot the flash toward the large walker enemies in order to disable them and try to take out their gun pod well unfortunately because the flash goes through everything and you know cuts through all of that stuff i actually destroyed both of the grenade gun pods of the two walkers toward the end of that portion of stage two <laughs> so then i had to pick up a vulcan cannon in order to take out the mid boss because i ran out of flash and I destroyed the grenade gun pods I had intended to pick up. Uh, so you really do have to be very careful about when and, and where to destroy gun pods and when not to. Yeah, definitely. It's more so in others. And we'll get to this with the graphics in just a bit here. But it's a game where you really have to be in charge of situational awareness. You're the bullets and where the enemies are placed. Someone's going to come by trial an error that you, you you just have no way of knowing the first time you play the game because of some of the weird perspectives you get from the 2.5D and the shift in camera angles. <clears throat> but it's something that you've got to always know where the enemies are in relation to you. And it's something that 
not always easy when you're going from a 2D plane. Right. So I guess let's move into graphics and talk a little bit about the graphics in the game and, and kind of what we think here. Uh, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's 3D visuals with a 2.5D perspective and somewhat shifting perspectives in certain areas. And I really think the visuals are quite impressive. But you have to, I have to wonder if the shifting perspectives and kind of the 2.5D and some of that was maybe inspired by the earlier PlayStation game, Philosoma, because that game used a ton of shifting perspectives. And I mean, you know, Einhander is a 2D game, but it kind of changes perspectives to where you may be looking kind of sort of behind the ship, but still in a 2D space mostly, or, you know, it'll change it a little bit here and there. Whereas in Philosoma, you know, you go from being a vertical shooter to a side-scrolling shooter to you're flying into the screen like a, like a Galaxy Force or a Space Harrier to in one section or a couple of places where you're fighting a boss character and you're flying, the ship is flying toward you, the player, and the boss is behind you and you're firing at almost like a, you know, a shoot 'em up take on the Crash Bandicoot level kind of a thing. So it's almost like this game was inspired by that at some level, but kind of reined in to where... We're only going to do 2D, and we're not going to do crazy perspective changes. It's just going to be, you know, little shifts here and there. I really think the game has a pretty solid use of color and shading in certain places, like uh, especially the, the vibrant colors and neon lights and everything in that first level with the city and that sort of Blade Runner aesthetic like you mentioned earlier. But then uh, muted colors in other areas, like in stage two, where, as you said, it's just kind of a wasteland. So it's it's nighttime and you've got this kind of blue tint from the moon creating uh, this sort of blue hue and haze over everything. And everything is very muted and, you know, it's all very kind of disused and destroyed in the background. And then, you know, different areas give off different vibes. But I really think it's overall a pretty good pretty good use of the of the uh, system's ability to have all the all these different colors and and shades on the screen yeah it's something that i would completely agree with and say that as far as the graphical style and what's used for with the textures and so it's something that has aged really well it's it's a, the graphical style the texture use, the color use on here. It's something that you can play without it looking overly garish or troublesome. And there's some spots in Philosoma where I'm looking at this going, okay, what, what it, this thing looks really weird, like some sort of weird 3DO hybrid, you know, something, something early that you'd see on there where this game, everything feels natural. And I have to say, I, I played originally on the PS2 uh, with a backwards compatibility and it looked okay but when I turned on smoothing on the PS3 it looked beautiful and really flows really well it's something that I could see if they did did bring a HD remake hopefully without waggle that it would 
that it would look nice and the art asses could be upscaled pretty easily. Yeah. And and one of the cool things that I like about the game because of the use of 3D graphics, you know, if you think about a traditional shoot 'em up that is 2D, unless you're doing something that's tile-based or you have a way to make a game to where uh, you can repeat certain backgrounds and stuff kind of on command. Uh, it's it's Most of those games are very scripted in the sense that the level is a certain length, and it is these background graphics and effects and things that make up the course of the level. So the level is going to be timed based on when you start to when you reach the boss, and then then the amount of time it extends beyond that is based upon how long it takes you to beat the boss. In this game, they play with that a little bit because of the 3D graphics. They're able to take and make the level shorter or longer based on how quickly you can take out a boss or complete an objective. And so, just by way of example, in stage three, that mid-boss, the, the gecko that we keep talking about, the sort of little mini spider boss, you're, you're in this corridor fighting this boss, and it's kind of a tight space. And if you take out that boss really quickly with something like the flash or the grenade or the cannon or whatever, it will seem like that corridor is incredibly short. But if it takes you longer to actually fell that that spider boss, then that corridor, because of how you can do things dynamically with 3D graphics, that corridor seems like it's way longer. Uh, and so areas like that can be stretched out or shortened dynamically on the fly because of the use of 3D graphics. So it's a really neat effect that they're able to pull off with the game by utilizing the art style and the graphical style in that way. Yeah, and speaking of the graphical style, there there is one thing that gets that I say definitely detracts from the experience and can cause problems. The different perspectives can be as more trial and error could be get more people. Other, you know, it would bother more people than some people more than others. But the biggest thing has to be the bullets. Mm. The the bullet obstruction, or what I like to refer to as last hope syndrome. <laughs> it's just really frustrating when you first start to play this game. I think the biggest barrier to entry for someone who's going to be playing this is you feel like you, sometimes you just got hit out of nowhere and you have no idea how things are going. It, it's a little bit too dark, at least in the first, I'd say, three stages or so. A little bit too dark for, to be giving you a good idea of where you're going to be being shot at from. Once it goes into the sub area and their bullets become a little bit easier to see, and once you, then of course on stage five it's daybreak and it's just easier and easier to see where things are coming from. But in those first three stages, it's very dark, and I, I understand the the game's reasoning for that. But it would have been nice to get more of a visual indication of where bullets are coming from, whether they're pink, blue, or uh, you know sequin colored, or just something. Right. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it for me specifically it's the it's the slow blue bullets that a lot of the popcorn enemies fire out. And then also enemies that have the wasp. Sometimes the wasp missiles will kind of get lost in the shuffle 
uh, among everything else. And so those sometimes can be hard to see. And, you know, you kind of wonder what hit you when you get taken down by one of those. And it's only in the last split second that you realize, oh, no, there's a missile coming straight for me and it's going to hit me. On the upside, though, I really think this game has good animation. One of the things I was noticing when I was streaming the game and I was it was in between levels, I was kind of just flying the ship randomly around the screen. And you can see the sort of vents in the back of the ship kind of toward the top as you move around and stuff. They shift position and it kind of waves around a little bit. And when you don't have a, a weapon equipped and you're sitting there kind of kicking out the the manipulator arm and stuff and, and the multiple frames of animation for how that works and and how when you move the ship around the the gun pods kind of sway a little bit and change position and just everything i really feel like the animation in the game despite the lower polygon count of the playstation one is relatively smooth um you know there's not really slow down in the game and everything moves really nicely and so the animation really i thought worked pretty well yeah i think the little bits like you mentioned there with the little animations do a great job at world building it's a little bit of some touch that you'd see with the neo geo games how they could add in a little bit more detail in there where the character would would stop for a second and you know ca catch their breath you get that in the you know the let's say the weight animations that you get out there versus something like Sonic the Hedgehog where you sit there and tap his foot. They're th those little types of details do a lot for world building, especially when you're dealing with a game like this where it's not going to be a graphical powerhouse. So you've got to fill in with it as much detail as you can. Yeah. Speaking of detail, real quick here, the one thing I did notice. And um, it looks like you did too, is that the explosions in the game are very well done. Oh, yeah. And the variety of explosions is cool. I mean, obviously with popcorn enemies and so forth, you're not going to get a ton. But when you start to get into the mid-sized enemies, and especially the bosses, they all have interesting explosions. Uh, you know, stage one the boss goes down with this sort of electrical shock thing and then just does this huge uh, sort of half moon kind of explosion thing that, that shoots out. Stage two's boss does this multiple levels of, you know, kind of cascading explosions. Stage three, after you beat it, it also kind of does this electrical thing. And then as you're flying out of the quarter and kind of down into the next area, you get this huge explosion that goes through the whole shaft or, or like the, the stage four mid boss or the, yeah, the stage four mid boss, the, uh, uh, what is it? The submarine, the submarine, like the, not the first submarine, but the, uh, the manta ray submarine. Uh, it has this really cool sort of, big flash of light kind of explosion that happens with it. So they're all really interesting and, and cool to watch. And they definitely give you that kind of sense of satisfaction when you beat the boss that, yeah, I just took you down. <laughs> you know, that's another thing about that too. I, I will quickly mention in here that the, with the bosses themselves and the, and speaking of the animation and the graphics on there, 
like watching that manta ray boss it was it's des as it's going under and it's desperately trying to use its hands to grab onto the railing and pull itself up or the death rolls on there and it does the same thing with the sound too each one of the bosses has its own sort of little death knell scream there which does a great job in making the entire package and the entire word all believable yeah we kind of touched on earlier the cyberpunk visual style, um, especially in the first area, and then kind of going into more of the desolation and destruction with stage two. And then as you start to get more toward the more hardened defenses of Earth's uh, colony, then you start to see more mechanized cityscape and structure and all of that, you know, more like military base kind of stuff. And uh, as we kind of have been talking about a little bit, I think some of the cues may have been taken from earlier games, particularly the the first mid-boss in the game is a blue kind of police robot. And that, again, I got to mention Philosoma because in that game, the first boss you encounter are these flying blue police uh, hover robot things. It looks a fair bit different from the one in Einhander. That that's a lot more interesting and a lot more uh, fun to fight. I would say just because it's got interesting attacks and cool stuff going on with it. But uh, it still is hard to shake the feeling that someone at Square was either a fan of Philosoma or was familiar with it <laughs> and was uh, you know maybe not ripping it off, but certainly using it as a source of inspiration. Um, speaking of sources of inspiration here, let's get inspired by talking about the sound of music. Yeah, uh, as, I, as I mentioned at the top of the episode here, the music score was written by, uh, was composed by Kenichiro Fukui, and uh, it's all electronic music, uh, but there are various different moods throughout the soundtrack. You know, there's there's uh, kind of pump you up music with fast techno beats, and then in some of the later stages, especially, you get stuff that's a little bit more somber or atmospheric. Some stuff that's a little bit more chill. You know, one of the things I like is you get some sort of pump you up music as you go into certain fights and things like that. Like in stage one, there's a really good track that kind of pumps you up to get you ready for uh, a big fight. Or in stage four, for example, when you're going into this tight area where there are all these enemies that are going to be coming at you, you get this sort of low bass line and a little bit of distortion sound that is very foreboding and kind of gives you that that sense of dread, like, oh no, they're really going to start you know, throwing the big guns at me. Whereas starting in like stage five... The music is a lot more uh, chilled out and almost antithetical to the amount of enemies on screen and everything else going on. And so it's almost like, here, here's a way to help the player be, try and get into a little bit more of a zen kind of moment uh, in order to take on all of these foes instead of something that is real busy and pump you up where you might be focusing too much on the music and not enough on the action on screen. Yeah, the, one of the other things I would have to add on here is, aside from the uh, lovely German that 
I can't understand <laughs> in there. The uh, the warning from the noise for the bosses is particularly stands out to me and is well done. Did you enjoy that as well? The the warning noise right before the boss to give you the sense of hey something big is coming. Yeah, you know it kind of kind of has a little bit of a Darius vibe in that sense. Reminds me a little bit of something like G Darius or. Darius Gaiden, and I also like how a lot of those bosses, when you get there, they kind of speak in German, uh, and so you get a little bit of that vibe and that sense of, it's not just a, an enemy you're fighting, this is a confrontation, um, because they're calling you out, and you know, now it's now it's time to, to put on your game face. And the same thing with the uh, radio chatter that happens as a transition between stages helps draw you into the world and gives you a better idea of you not just going from you know oh look here's a fire stage oh wait here's a water stage oh here's this stage here's a plant stage it it gives a nice flow to the game yeah i really like that aspect and of course with the cd technology and uh you know yellow book audio or whatever it is they can they can include all of that at a pretty high fidelity or bit rate to where it sounds really good Now, one thing that I have to mention, and this was just brought to my attention a couple of days ago, but uh, so credit where credit is due is Red McKnight from RF Generation pointed this out to me, but in the track Shudder from the soundtrack, which is the music that plays during the first boss, there is a a rap uh, segment to that that plays in the background. Now, it's somewhat distorted, so there's effects put on it. Uh, It sounds a little distorted, and it's got a little bit of an echo on it, and so it almost sounds like it's kind of in the background a little bit. But it is apparently a sample from a, uh, like a rap, or, um, well, it's from this company called Masterbits, and they were a, a German company that made a series of of sample CDs and things like that, where you could purchase the CD and then essentially license the samples and the beats and the music on those in order to utilize in your own stuff. And it's it's from this disc called the Masterbits Rhapsody Vocals 2 Sample CD. And it's no longer commercially available, uh, and there's very little info online about it, but... Gamers have noticed over the years that this rap segment that's in in that track has been used in several other games. And so just a quick list here. Uh, there's a track called Fenrir from the game R. Tenelico. Uh, in Ape Escape Pumped and Primed uh, soundtrack, there's a song called Pipatron's Theme, which has a version of this that's a little bit more clear and slightly easier to kind of pick out the lyrics. There's a, a Sega arcade game called Ollie King, which is sort of a, a skateboarding game where you actually stand on a large kind of skateboard peripheral. Uh, and it's a track called Let It Go. That uses what I think is a modified version or like a redubbed version of it. The uh, bonus game 2 from the Street Fighter 3 arranged soundtrack has this. There's this, uh, I'm guessing, obscure Japanese uh, game. I don't know if it's a doujin or what it is, but it's called Zuki in Winter or Zuki in 
1995 winter or something like that. The song is called Boots. And then in the game Air Gear, there's a track called Master Buster. Uh, but of course, Einhander's song Shudder is the most well-known and famous use of this track. I was reading something on an old post on the Hardcore Gaming 101 forums where it also mentioned that other songs from this same CD and then other samples and bits from other Master Bits CDs have been used across multiple games. So this must have been a common thing for developers to buy these these kind of stock sound discs during the 90s and then use this stuff for their games so that they didn't have to create everything from scratch. But one thing that's interesting is if you look at the various lyric translations or approximations, I'll say, because the lyrics are in English, but they're always obscured by the music at some level, and they're so fast that it's hard to pick out all the words. But based on most of the lyric translations that I've read, in this song, the guy who's delivering these rhymes drops the F-bomb. So it's interesting that in... This game, which according to the ESRB is rated E for everyone, that somehow escaped the uh, the ears of the ESRB rating team. You know, same thing with like that Ape Escape game. I don't know if that song actually appears in the game itself or if it's just on a soundtrack CD that was available in Japan. But it's interesting to think about that being in a game during that time. It's something that you would see more so today in mature-rated games and things on modern platforms. You know, even thinking as as far back as, like, the Wii with uh, something like House of the Dead Overkill or the uh, No More Heroes games, that kind of a thing. Or in other kind of action games during that time, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360. But in this era, you didn't really get that. And so it's a, it's a little curious that that somehow got past the censors. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to hear about this. I did a quick search for Yuki Winner, and a lot of weird things came up. So I'll just leave it at that and <laughs> move on. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, it, it's definitely did a great job with the soundtrack the german language we talked about earlier the, bo- the boss screams in the german language here i would say for me that the boss theme is iconic it's one of the things that i hear and i definitely understand the only thing that i, I keep getting stuck in my head and this is no fault of the game is uh, no matter what i keep hearing so like the the gradius expect an announcer to come through and say shoot the head <laughs> and the other, or the other guy would say shoot the core you know it's just it's just so well ingrained and they're playing so many of those games now right and i and i don't remember the name of the track i wish i did right off the top of my head but the the particular track that that has the kind of pump you up music before you go into i think it's called chase uh, that's the one that's sort of like the the stage I think that's stage one or or maybe stage two. I don't remember, but the, it's really fast-paced techno kind of music. And there's this repeating thing where it's almost like the police or the authorities must be in stage one telling you you're not supposed to be here 
and you're in violation of the law. It's like you're engaged in an unauthorized procedure or something like that. And it repeats it two or three times. And uh, that combined with this sort of high energy, uh, hyper fast kind of techno beat really gets the blood pumping. And I love that. But this soundtrack overall, I really, really like. And I, I have a, a CD of the soundtrack that in my old car I used to spin constantly. And now that my new car has a digital-only stereo, when I take the device that I've got that music on into the car with me, that's one of my go-to soundtracks for when uh, I'm not specifically listening to something else because I just love the soundtrack. Yeah, I believe it, the Stage 1 boss says something similar to like, you shouldn't be here, unload your weapons. And you proceed to do just that, unload your weapons. <laughs> right into his face. Uh, speaking of unloading weapons on here, let's move on to scoring and how to maximize your score potential. Now, scoring is start out by the multiplier bar on the bottom right. As you destroy enemies, the meter increases, which increases the point value per enemy shot down. Values go from 1x to 16x, or 1 times to 16 times, which is a max. If you reach 16 times, the meter turns red and your score continues to accrue points for a short time. The point value you receive for destroying an enemy will be determined by the multiplier number. That is, the higher the meter is, the greater the point value you receive. Also, the higher the meter is, the quicker it drips down to a lower number. Yeah, pretty much on here, you're going to be trying to hit the popcorn as much, trying to hit up to the 16x multiplier, and then go for some of the, the higher point pinatas, so to speak. Right. And that was one thing I was talking about before in stage two, when you've got all those kind of drone enemies that line up in a, in a single file kind of fashion. If you've got the flash or the cannon, you can literally let them all come on screen and sit at the back of the screen and then fire one cannon blast or one flash blast. And your multiplier zips up almost immediately to 16 times or, or close to that because you can really get, uh, you can really jump that multiplier up pretty quick doing that kind of a thing. Indeed. Now, additional, sorry, excuse me, additional points are awarded for completing the S bonus or secret bonus objectives, which we spoke about earlier. Additional bonuses are also awarded for hit combos when you destroy multiple enemies, such as with a single volley with a cannon, grenade, flash, or hedgehog. End level bonuses for the do the following. Number of enemies shot down. Number of gun pawns selected, boss repulse time, 300k points for 30 seconds or less, 3,000 points less for each second beyond that. With a 2 minutes and 10 seconds, you get no points. Fighters left, the fight extra lives that you have in stock. This is where the end level bonus is one of the biggest bonuses for me. Here, what's your take on the end level bonus? Yeah, the, the thing that I noticed is that the boss repulse time is far and away the biggest and most important bonus in the whole game. If you want to earn points in order to get extra lives, this is, this is where you're gonna, you're gonna try to do that. You know, your multiplier helps and, and earning a high multiplier and, and trying to keep it up as much as you can will ramp up your score during stages. But ultimately trying to take down a boss in 30 seconds or less so you can get that 300 K bonus at the end of each stage that's that's gonna be where you're 
you're going to earn a lot of your points. Now, a way to boost your score with something like the Astrea, where you can just go and collect all the gun pods as you go through so that you're never running out of ammo and you are always got something to fire. Or if you unlock the Cockroach, for example, and you just collect every gun pod to, to continue to boost your firepower and all that, that's a way to definitely get a much higher bonus for the number of gun pods collected. But it's a lot smaller bonus than the 300,000 points you get for taking out the bosses. It is a pretty decent bonus, though, for the number of extra lives you have in stock. So obviously, not dying during the course of a level and preserving as many lives as you have, especially once you get up to the point where you start to earn extra lives, uh, because, you know, you earn your first extend at 2 million points, and then I think you earn your next one at 5 million, and again at 8 million. So if you can hold on to those extra lives and, you know, kind of one life things, that just compounds more and more and more. Uh, and in similar fashion to kind of the way we talked about during uh, the episode for Crimson Clover, you know, every time you get to the end of a level with as many lives intact as possible, that's going to significantly impact your, your end level bonus. Excellent. Now, score only tallies at the end of your first continue. Your score will still show if you continue, but only the first credit will display at the end when you get a game over screen. Now, we the game itself has a rating system. The game grades you on how well you perform in a number of categories. They are shot down, the enemy number of enemies shot down, overall score, boss bonus, average of boss repulse time bonus points, highest percentage, how frequently you get a 16x multiplier, tech points. I'm not entirely sure how this one's calculated, but it ideally it has something to do with how many checkpoints you pass without dying and then of course we have the secret bonus number of secret bonuses obtained which we talked about earlier the maximum number is 21 yeah yeah usually on a lot of this stuff on here the boss bonus is usually like an a the shot down is usually an a and everything else is like between c and e yeah i i had one particular game where i did pretty well let's see i got uh a for score a for boss bonus b for shot down and then my secret bonus and tech points were c and my highest percentage was d that was the best i did and that was up for the run where i got my highest score so it it really is those other categories are difficult to uh to really get good percentages on yeah it's it's something that's sort of neat on here but but to me, this game is not so much... It's not uh, a game that I'd be playing for score, at least overall. It's it's not a uh, DOJ or you know Crimson Clover on there. It's not something where you're going to go, okay, if I take this path and do this, then then I can keep my chain multiplier going and I can do this. It's, it's a lot more, as we talked about earlier, a slower-paced game where survival is the key element on here unless you're doing something neat for a speed run or trying to show off just surviving is the biggest bonus you can get yeah do you have anything that you'd like to add on for scoring what i noticed is my score started to go up quite a bit when i a 
focused on getting my multiplier up and keeping it up as much as possible. Uh, you know, there are lulls in the game or during each level where there are no enemies, so your, your multiplier is naturally going to fall. But if you can focus on kind of getting successive kills so that you're constantly shooting something and keeping that multiplier up as high as you can, that's going to help you score more points per per kill and, you know, overall get more points in the game. But the boss repulse time, just to reemphasize that, that is going to be a major factor in making sure that you can ramp your score up quickly. Yeah, if you wait too long, as we talked about earlier, the boss will be repulsed by you and just head off the screen. <laughs> that's true. Uh, and speaking of all this on here, overall, I mean, my impression of the game is that still all these years later, I love this game. It, it's a great game. It definitely has its flaws, but it has tons of replayability. And for anybody who's interested in trial and error games like our type, it's definitely something to pick up and try. It, there's a lot of options with the ship. There's options with a weapon. There's many ways by this. And the best part of it all is... They programmed a lot of different behaviors into the bosses. They're like the gecko or spider boss. You think there's a blind spot right above it, but then it starts shooting out little, I guess you could, not really quite a hedgehog, but shoots out little flares above it to shoo you off from that spot so that way it can hit you again. The enemy behavior patterns really are, depending upon your play style, and in some cases, such as the swatting gorilla mid-boss, very unexpected. Yeah. And the soundtrack does a great job on there. The story will be a little bit esoteric, works well. Overall, it's a great package, and it's something that... It's a, it's a shame that it's sort of lost to the annals of time here. Then we're, We probably aren't going to see it revisited anytime soon by Square Enix. Yeah, I mean, they've they've referenced it a couple of times. Uh, I want to say there's an Einhander reference in uh, Kingdom Hearts 3. And uh, somebody also said that there was a little bit of Einhander reference in World of Final Fantasy. But otherwise, yeah, it, it really is a game that is very much lost to time over the last 20 years uh, as Squaresoft has... You know, with the merger with Enix and focusing pretty much exclusively on RPGs these days with the occasional dalliance in uh, something else with something like Decidia, you know, this, this experimental period of their existence is long over now. And it's a shame because I really like this game a lot. You know, I, I came back to this game remembering that I liked it, knowing that I liked the soundtrack but remembering that I wasn't very good at it and I never got very far in it. When I first started in the in the beginning of the month, uh, I was very discouraged because I realized this game is, is as difficult as I remember and I'm not going to get very far. Thankfully, uh, I disproved that and I was eventually, toward the end of the month, able to reach stage six on a single credit sometimes. Yeah, stage five or I think I got to stage six one time on a single credit. Sometimes I could reach stage five. Uh, stage four is a killer, hard to get through, and so sometimes I 
would you know have to spend a credit or two to get through stage four you know to get beyond that in the game but i did end up beating the game with a total of nine credits and even at this point you know 20 years after the fact it's it still felt awesome to be able to take down the final boss even if it took me six credits to you know kind of figure out how to actually fight it and win but there's so much to like here the the replayability that you mentioned earlier with the different ships and the different secret bonuses and all of that the fact that with all the different ships you can really play the game in a way that suits you the amazing soundtrack the the graphics i think hold up pretty well for their vintage and, uh, you know, in part because of the good use of color, the good animation, and overall sharp design and, and uh, kind of nice aesthetic that they use throughout the game. And at the end of the day, uh, this is a game that I really enjoyed coming back to. And I think after playing it for the whole month, despite some frustration I had with it, I actually find... That I like it better than I thought I did. You know, I, I re like I said, I remember liking the game and just not being very good at it. But now I have a much more full appreciation for it because I put the time in and I spent that time really focusing and honing in on what it is the game has to offer and really digging into how to play it. And so I really think that this is one of those shoot 'em ups that's not just. It, it works okay as a pick up and play game, but it really rewards you for putting in the time and really, you know, kind of digging your hands in and uh, just really focusing on it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that you can get out of this with uh, multiple playthroughs on here. And it's obviously designed that way and really works well for what you'd normally get out of it, more of an uh, traditional arcade experience from your standard STG. Yeah. You're, it gives you a chance to play more for more than just score. Absolutely. And that's impressive. Yeah. All right. Uh, I would like to do some thoughts from the RF Generation community, but apparently there are none, so... <laughs> now, apparently, we just need to edit this part in, huh? Yeah. Uh, do you have some thoughts from the community? Yeah, a uh, couple of comments here. One from Sir Psycho. He says, I'll join in on this one. See how rusty I am since my review a few months back. And uh, I had actually forgotten that he had done that review, but uh, that was cool to see that he jumped in. Um, we had uh, Hiro Tsukasa, who mentioned, uh, wanted to know if it was too late to join in. And of course, that was at the beginning of the month. He says, Einhander is one of those games I've always wanted to dig in and play, but it tends to go forgotten or falls by the wayside to something else. I usually play more for survival and shooting for 1ccs, so I suspect the scoring mechanics with the multiplier bar will give me some trouble, haha. It feels like that definitely favors being very aggressive. And that's true. I'm sorry, one thing I want to add real quick on here is I believe that if the... Scoring bar bothers you that much. I believe Plastine Select will actually turn it off, so you won't be able to... It'll still be going on, but you won't see it. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> one of the little bit of light ribbing in the in the thread here from Coin Tengoku. Uh, 
Zoido was po- posting a score and and uh, sharing that he, he couldn't get past the stage two boss yet on one credit. And this was early in the month, but Kointo Goku says, I hate to say it, Zoido, but I'm kind of pleased that you're running into challenges since you pretty much took the cake with Crimson Clover. I'm sure you will overcome. If you run into things that are tricky, please give us some tips. And uh, he kind of responds and says, uh, I have to admit that I have quite a tough time playing Einhander. I often do not see the bullets because of enemy explosions, uh, enemies or explosions, and I really struggle to differentiate if the enemies that are coming in are still in the background or already at the same level as my ship. So sometimes I just crash into them. I always liked the game, but find it hard to keep a clear view of what's going on. And I can kind of see his point on that. You know, we talk about how the graphics in the game are quite good and, and are used well, but any kind of 3D perspective in a game like this, especially early games uh, of this time frame, yeah, sometimes it can be difficult to see, uh, unless the game has really good light sourcing and so forth, you know, what a position is of an enemy or an obstacle. And sometimes you don't exactly see where something is or when it's going to be right into your kind of line of vision. Yeah, the cockroaches in stage one love to do that on you, especially after the uh, mid-boss, when you, the things are sort of flying back a little bit, and then you've got the uh, snail enemy that's coming down. It's right after the uh, mid-boss, where it sort of does a, a pseudo, pseudo 3D there, it changes perspective a little bit. That's really hard to keep your line of, line of sight on there, because they can quickly crash into you. Yeah. Uh, Sir Psycho also says, I've been focusing on getting the perfect level runs, and I've been stuck trying to even figure out the first level. I'm sure you may have run across an S bonus in the game at some point. I found two in the first level, but there were three spots. I finally found the third S bonus in the first level, and it took me down an alternate path to the boss. I had no idea this existed. And I was right there with Sir Psycho. I didn't know that was a thing either until... I watched Sarah stream the game and then he was doing that and he was talking about it while he was playing the level and he was completely blowing my mind because I was thinking, how is it that I never knew this stuff? But then watching him actually pull that off and meet the requirements to do that, then I saw the alternate path and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Uh, but I found that that getting that alternate path by shooting down that first mid-boss by only taking out his hover unit at the bottom, that's harder than it looks, and it's harder than it seems in practice. And so the way that I found to do it consistently was to use the flash and equip that on the bottom so you could kind of shoot at a downward angle and then only take out that hover piece. Then I was able to pull that off pretty much every time when I did it that way. Uh, And then I started going down that alternate path because... You get a whole bunch of popcorn enemies leading up to that, uh, and it gives you a chance to, you know, do more with your score. Yeah, the riot works pretty well for taking out the hover as well, if you can get into the exact spot. But he does a pretty good job, the mid-boss that is, does a pretty good job of moving quickly up and down. So you're, you're more likely to aim for the head than the actual hover unit. Right. Uh, Zoido mentions uh, or links us to a f- uh, an FAQ that talks about the differences between the Japanese and the U.S. version, uh, which we kind of touched on a little bit. Yep, the Japanese versions in Japanese 
with a little bit of German and the U.S. versions in English, a little bit of German. Uh, exactly. Uh, I also wanted to mention uh, there was a couple of additional comments here. Zoido mentioned that uh, this is kind of the same thing. The alternate path in stage one seems to work nice for scoring. He says, one time I got all the bonuses and did some good chains so I could finish the game with 1,510,000 points. Unfortunately, I I screwed stage two completely and didn't even make it on the scoreboard. Uh, and then he also linked to the TV Tropes page about Einhander, which has some neat trivia about the game, which I won't go into in you know, great detail, but uh, pretty cool stuff. Jam Master J, when he jumped in here late in the month, he... He said that, uh, he says, Einhander is one of my favorite shooters. I remember playing it on a demo disc. I liked what I had played up to the point that I had reached the end level boss, but it was that circular explosion I saw after defeating him that captivated my attention, and I've loved this game ever since. It just seems so stylish in a way I had never seen before. It has a special place in my heart because it surprised me with its fairly robust gameplay mechanics. The weapon selection was pretty staggering for its time. It seemed like I was always discovering a new weapon well after the first stage had ended. I adored that the game actually let me blow up passive enemies in the background when you had the wasp missiles in homing mode. Besides that, the shifting camera angles in key moments were breathtaking and thrilling at a time when you never saw that in a shooter, except maybe Raystorm. Thinking back on it, I think Squaresoft was applying their dramatic RPG skills to give us the superbly unique Einhander. And then Coin Tengoku here gives uh, what he calls my two cents review. Game is okay, but failed to really make me want to come back to it to continue playing. In totality, I just had a really tough time seeing the bullets and having fun playing the game. I think the controls are good, graphics are okay, and sound is good. I couldn't really make it past stage 3, and I have no scores worth posting up that outrank any previous posts by other members. I'm going to give this one a 6.5 out of 10. So, a little bit of a dissenting view there from, from Coin Tengoku, which is okay. And he did later post a picture on the forum where he did get a higher score, and, and we'll cover that here in a little bit. Zoido also uh, offered some final thoughts here. He says, I really like the design of the game. The developers really put some effort in creating a nice plot and cool cutscenes. The atmosphere of the game is amazing, and the great soundtrack supports that also. The German voice samples felt a little weird to me, but I found it quite funny. As I already said, I often had problems with seeing bullets or differing if enemies are in the background or on the same layer as my ship, so I often crashed into stuff or was hit by bullets that I didn't notice. The respawn points and the unskippable cutscenes make the game feel chunky to me somehow, and all that really started annoying me after a few runs. Playing for score felt frustrating for me, so that's why I didn't spend too much time playing it and only played two or three runs every two or three days. I also have to admit that I was distracted by Ketsui Destiny a little bit because I got my copy of the PS4 port this month and it's awesome. <laughs> Uh, maybe I will return to Einhander sometime and play through it in free play mode to see the rest of the game uh, because I haven't played stages 5, 6, and 7 yet and the ending. I fully understand the Ketsui distraction. I 
Oh man, if, if I weren't recording this with you right now, I would definitely be playing Ketsui or some sort of ca- cave game. <laughs> that game is great, but I, I, I totally understand. The, the, our, this is a game, as we mentioned earlier, has a lineage with our type So you're going to be doing a lot of trial and error until you've got the stages memorized on here. It's going to be a pretty tough game. And that's not something for everybody on here. Some people don't prefer memorization. And the other thing to deal with this is we are very much in a Donmaku world. These type of games don't come around anymore. Everyone's interested in the different scoring system that they can get. In fact, I think the one that... The one, the most recent one that came around, it's doing great for the uh, casual. I don't really well. Casual is probably a bad word for this, but for the uh, people who don't normally play STGs, is Devil Engine mm, yeah. on there. But, but but for people, for the people who l- love cave games and all the stuff that they're that they're going for, the real hardcore crowd, it's just isn't their type of game. Sure, and, and I, I think that I think that this this is probably some of his frustration too. Is just the the huge amount of trial and error required by this game in order to figure out what you need to do. To mention, sometimes you can it's having the right weapon, knowing exactly the right enemy placement. There are a lot of different reasons where I could see somebody getting more frustrated than fun out of this. Yeah, I can see that. Let's go over the high scores real quick. Now, I I started the month playing on normal, but I shifted to easy uh, because I was getting frustrated and also having some difficulty, but we didn't really talk about this. But I found that easy mode really didn't change a whole lot other than the amount of boss HP. Uh, there might have been a couple less bullets on the screen during the stages, but otherwise they really didn't feel that much different. So the biggest difference that I saw was just that the bosses had less HP. But uh, I ended up getting the highest score during the course of the month. But again, I say I was playing on easy. Uh, but that I, I managed to hit 10,138,080 points. I don't remember when I changed over from playing normal to easy, so uh, any of the scores that I got on normal, I'm not going to count because, like I said, I don't remember when that was. Zoido ended up with a normal difficulty score, top score of 2,703,660 points. And again, a uh, bit of an honorable mention, since Goku said he wasn't going to post a score, but then did later because he ended up getting, you know something that I think he was pleased enough with. He he managed to hit 1,928,180 points. And I mean, I remember when I was stoked to hit a million points. And of course, that was early on in the game. But it was really cool to see that there was score progression from early in the game, you know, just a couple hundred thousand points to well over a million and beyond. Um, and you know, my own journey through the course of the month, like I say, that one run, I managed to get to stage six, I think on, on a single credit. And on that first credit, you know, I had over 10 million points, which blew my mind. Yeah. It's definitely a lot lower scores this time than Crimson Clover. We don't have billions of, in billions of scores here. (laughs) That's true. Uh, as we move into the final thoughts, I, I decided to do something fun. 
So I posed the question on Twitter from the shoot cor- at shootcorecast account. Uh, I said, recording the new episode tonight, talking about Einhander, what's your favorite thing about the game? And we had a handful of responses. Uh, Duke Togo from the CollectorCast says, I didn't sneak in time to play with the release of Sekiro, but I enjoyed watching the streams. And of course, he's referring to watching me stream because he was in the streams pretty frequently. He says, it's still a very beautiful game, despite its age. G.I. Dion says, probably the soundtrack. That's his favorite part. The uh, Shoot the Core account, (laughs) uh, which is at underscore Shoot the Core, says the music and the gun attachments. And uh, our buddy Mark MSX from the Electric Underground podcast says 3D graphics. Its presentation is great. So I thought that was kind of a fun little little experiment there to just kind of throw that question out on Twitter and and see what we we have. But uh, in terms of final thoughts... Like I said earlier, for me, this is a game that I remember fondly, but remember not being very good at and just remembering that I liked it. But coming back to this game, I really have a much deeper appreciation for it uh, on multiple levels. And it's something that I could see myself going back to, especially now that I've progressed so far. Uh, in order to see if there's a way that I can get a single credit clear and possibly unlock the cockroach or something like that. You know, I don't see my myself ever getting a 1cc on hard and unlocking the ultimate uh, unlockable ship. But it is something that, after putting the time in and really learning the game, I could see myself getting a 1 credit clear of this at some point, even if it is on easy. And so I really feel like this is a, a really strong game, a really good showing from Squaresoft, and its existence is a bit of an anomaly given what the company is known for, but it's, it's a happy accident, I guess you could say in that way, and it's almost a shame that they never followed it up with anything else. But at the same time, in a way, it's good that they never made any other shooters because this kind of one and done sort of thing, you know, they, they, they did this one game and it was really strong. And so we're not going to do any more because we'll never top it. So who knows? Yeah. I definitely think that they went out on a high note with this one. (laughs) This has a lot of nostalgia for me because uh, back when I was just starting to get back into console gaming, I, ended up getting a mod chip on my original PlayStation, and that opened up the world of imports. And the guy I purchased a lot of my games from at the time also sold imports, and this, along with Gradius uh, Gaiden, is one of the two games that I played with a friend of mine just for hours and hours upon end as we were trying to figure out new things to unlock and different things. Back when this game first came out, and the soundtrack, I mean, everything is just as I remember it. Except the game to me this time seemed just a little bit easier. Maybe it's because I have a little bit more patience. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things where it gets almost everything right. But there are a couple of flaws in here 
Not really due to game design mechanics. I mean, you could argue with that, that the different angles with the 2.5D, sure. But it, it's one of those that's a product of its time. So it's going to be really hard to duplicate. And, in, and you could also argue maybe shouldn't be duplicated. For those of you who are searching for something different, and here, definitely give this title a shot. If nothing else, you have played a unique game in history, or an STG history. Definitely. The, the only other thing that I, I'm thankful and looking forward to, is because of this and the way that it plays, is, I guess nostalgia is getting the better of me here, but <laughs> it's just, it's one of those titles that, like, Gradius Galaxy, or sorry, not Gradius Galaxies, Gradius Gaiden, or R the original R-Type, or, you know, even R-Type Delta. It's one of those things that you do, you, you just find yourself one day thinking about, and you pop it in, and you can just enjoy yourself and have a good time playing it. Yeah. All right, so what do we have coming next? Well, by the time all of you hear this, uh, we're going to be getting toward the middle of May, which means you should already be playing Gradius 3 alongside us. Uh, we are playing the arcade version and the Super NES version. Uh, and so for me, myself, with my streams, I'm kind of focusing on the Super NES version during roughly the first half of the month, see how far I can get. And then the back half of the month, I'll probably be streaming the arcade version on PS2. I'm kind of dabbling with that um, via PSP at work on my lunch breaks and that. But I can already tell that I'm making a lot more progress in the SNES version than I will probably make in the arcade version. <laughs> uh, and then coming up the month of June, we have Ghost Blade. Um, so we'll be taking a look at Ghost Blade, which was originally a Dreamcast release by the company Hughcast, uh, sort of a posthumous independent release from them, uh, came out from on the Dreamcast well after its uh, commercial death, so to speak, and then has more recently been kind of redone as Ghost Blade HD and is available uh, digitally on the... Wii U, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC, and did get a limited physical release on PS4 through Limited Run Games. You mean East Asia? Oh, you're, you're right. East Asia Soft. And so Play Asia carried that. I managed to grab a copy of that. So I've got the physical version on PS4. And then actually the game has been printed multiple times. Uh, it originally came out in 2015 on the Dreamcast but it's been printed multiple times, and the most recent has been through uh, Josh Prod, actually re-released it again. And so I have a copy of that sitting here waiting for me to crack open and do some streaming and playing next month. So much like this month with uh, Gradius 3, I'll probably start with the Dreamcast version uh, and kind of concentrate on that in the beginning, and then maybe transition over to the PS4 version sometime during the month. Now, June also marks another important event. It's a shmup anniversary of the Shoot the Corecast. It is. Uh, you know, we started, we started the 
playthroughs in uh, May of last year. But yeah, we, we started recording the podcast in June of 2018. So this is really cool that uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of releasing the podcast. So very exciting. And we'll have some special surprises coming in June. We will indeed. All right. We'd like to get some shout outs out. I'd like to thank Sir Flash of Studio Muppets, Bullet Heaven for the logo. I do got um, some new shirts, and can you tell us where we can find those? Yeah, uh, you just want to go to redbubble.com and uh, either search for Shoot the Core or Shoot the Core-Cast, and this will be the top or one of the top results, and you can buy yourself a Shoot the Core-Cast shirt and uh, wear it proudly. Support the podcast. I'd like to thank Kogoso for the intro and outro music. Everyone at R of Gen, and especially those who played along with us, as well as the Playcast crew. To thank everyone who participated in the 2019 R of Gen NES Challenge. And i also like to thank, should give a shout out to this guy named Metalfro for streaming something. <laughs> oh, Uno, he streams Uno. Ah. Uh, get that Xbox Live going. All right. No, it's just, uh, also don't forget to come in and watch, watch, watch some old men play some uh, shmup games or something on there. Yeah. For shmup game of the month. There, where this month we are watching you handily beat the uh, Gradius Three for the SNES, and I'm looking forward to you inventing more swear words in Cubert when you start playing the arcade version. <laughs> well, I'll try not to. I'll try not to invent any new swear words, but uh, uh, but the arcade version will definitely uh, probably draw a bit more ire. <laughs> Indeed, you could you start. You, I'll give you a word to start out here. Shmup of a <laughs> son of a shmup. Yeah, something like that. We got to keep it family friendly here, folks. That's right. All right. Anything else that uh, we need to to cover here before we take off? Um, I, I aside from thanking Sir Flash, I have to also give a shout out and thank you to Dayruna for. <clears throat> Keeping things interesting and uh, reading out of the comments for sort of streamed. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely uh, helps to keep them entertaining. Indeed. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Good luck and good night. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>